I love my water bottle. Yeah. It's the best present. Yeah. But where is it? Well, it's usually where I need it. Do you want? I can hear. Before we start, was there something of you had any thoughts or reflections from last week's discussion? I'll remind you what last week's discussion was. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain, and my flesh and blood in the body dry up. I shall not permit the course of my effort to stop until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, and human exertion. That's what we started with last week. Did, did somebody here mention about the uh, paradox of needing great effort in order to I think it was mentioned, I found where that, I think that's done from Christmas conference, mm -hmm. who I'm reading, and I, so I've been thinking about that, and finding it, finding it very, uh, I find myself in tune with that, mm -hmm. saying that it's not, um, that, the, that I have resistance to the work, it's the work or the effort, more as finding finding uh, the, uh, the right approach, uh, where it's inviting to, I, I'm feeling invited to apply my effort, it has become effortless when I <coughs> rightly connected, and in that way I, I would even say that would be some right striving, but thinking about about uh, how much effort it might be is something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think the, the phraseolo phraseology is awkward in the sense of effort to let go somehow doesn't exactly describe the process. You know, I see it more as there's clinging in the mind and this craving in the mind, holding on in the mind, because we're not seeing clearly. And so the effort is not to let go. The effort is to see clearly. And then so all the... In that way, I think the understanding of effort is all brought into our relationship to the moment rather than something outside of the moment. And out of the seeing clearly, the letting go happens. I wanted to give a little background on, I mean, obviously with this statement, the Buddha is saying something quite strong about the necessity for the kind of effort that's needed. Why is it so important? What is worth that kind of effort? I mean, another way of expressing it was 
suggested that when we practice, we practice without regard for body or life. Now that's, that's an amazing attitude to have. And so the question which arises, I think, quite naturally, is what's worth this? What is worth this kind of effort? In order to understand why this kind of effort is called for, it's necessary to have kind of a little background And it's tied into what I was talking about last night, for those of you who heard the talk. All of our actions bring results. That's the power of volitional action. And in the long course of our evolution over lifetimes, we have all performed endless amounts countless numbers of actions, both wholesome and unwholesome. And the Buddha said that these actions retain their power to bring about a result over the course of lifetimes. So it's not like each, each lifetime we start with a clean slate. Consciousness contains within it, this flow of consciousness contains this long trail of wholesome and unwholesome actions waiting for the proper opportunity to bring about its result. There is a thread which brings these actions along from life to life. And it's, the example used is like a threading uh, a row of beads. And when you thread it, all the beads follow. The thread in all of these actions is the one particular kilesa or defilement, what is called personality belief, or belief in self, belief in I. As long as this kilesa, as long as this defilement is present in the mind, it empowers or it, it gives power to this infinitely long trail of past actions which are waiting for the opportunity to bear fruit. Some of the fruits will be wonderful some of the fruits will be not so wonderful. <laughs> and so the the guarantee for us for happiness comes when we can uproot from the mind this personality belief, 
this sense of self. And until that's done, it's like we're going through life with this huge, uh, you could think of it as a huge debt that is yet to be paid. As soon as this personality belief, this belief in self, this belief in I, is uprooted from the mind, and it's the first of the kalesis that's uprooted. It happens at the very first stage of realization. From that moment of uprooting, it's like pulling the thread out. And all of those past actions, the unwholesome past actions, lose their power to condition an unwholesome rebirth. Are you getting a sense so far? I mean, what, I'm, what, <laughs> what the point of all this is, and why I think it's so important and so urgent to understand, is that we're looking at a very big picture. And it's a picture that involves opportunities for tremendous happiness and also possibilities of tremendous suffering. contained in the mind, in the mind, are the seeds of this suffering. And so the kind of effort that the Buddha is talking about, it's the effort which allows us to actually cut off the possibility of that immensity of suffering. So it is in some sense, the most urgent thing we can do. Now, one of the images that's used often, and it so, feels so appropriate to me, is that of children playing in a house that's burning. And the house is up in flames, and the children are in the house just playing with their toys, oblivious to the fact that it's going up in flames. The Buddha comes along and says, hey, <laughs> the house is going up in flames, why don't you step outside? Depending on the wisdom, or the awareness, or the skillful means, the children either come out or they don't. We're a lot like those children in the burning house. It's like we get so involved in the daily stuff of our lives. And some of it is nice, and some of it is not so nice, and wholesome and unwholesome, but we're so caught up in it that we lose sight, we lose the understanding of the fact that actually the house is burning all around us, and that <laughs> it would be a good thing to do something about it, to step outside of that burning house. There are three levels of power to this sense of self. To, in Pali it's called Sakaya Ditti, personality belief. Well, this personality belief manifests, let's say, in three ways. It can manifest in unwholesome actions which actually harm others. 
And then we see it. And when people are really motivated to very unskillful actions, they can be so strong as to be harmful to other people. There's another level of this personality, this belief in self, which manifests in actions which don't necessarily harm other people, but harm ourselves. In other words, when we're in unwholesome states of mind. There's a third level of manifestation of this personality belief, and that is its latent form which means that it's not actually manifesting in an unwholesome way in the moment, either to harm others or to harm ourselves, but because it's not uprooted, it's just waiting for that time when the conditions are right to manifest in a stronger way. And so what the Buddha is urging and exhorting and admonishing and what he's saying is it is absolutely essential to uproot from this latent level of mind the sense of self the sense of I and that's why of course he encouraged people to lead good lives and moral lives and be happy and peaceful in their lives, but that was not, that was not the depth of what he was after. Because in, the, in that regard, we can live in a way that we're not harming others, and we're even pretty peaceful in ourselves, but still we have not uprooted this fundamental belief in I or self. And that is the only it is the only way to free ourselves from this trail of past actions and fruit of those actions. That's why this kind of effort is of value. Now often when the Buddha was asked to condense his teachings, it all came down to one thing. He said he teaches suffering and the end of suffering. Not just kind of a temporary alleviation, not just, you know, going away for the weekend and having a nice time. What he's saying is that the teachings are about the end of suffering. Well, that is a huge, that's a very big thing. And what it takes is this kind of effort. Before we kind of get into a discussion of what this kind of effort means in the context of our lives, do you have any reactions or comments or questions or things about what I've said? Was it clear to you? And this, it's a distillation of this book, so. But the importance of the third aspect of, you know, the, the karmic repercussions of our actions, is, you're emphasizing that as opposed to the places that can be so strong as to 
give us a tendency towards unskillful action. Are you saying that the third, the 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 unconscious tendency of, uh, of creating a self is more important than all the other aspects of karma? What I'm saying is that it's that, it's it's the defilement or the kalesa of self-belief which is at the root of those actions which harm others, which harm ourselves and which in the past and present are creating the seeds of a huge amount of suffering. And these seeds follow us until that sense of self is uprooted. I would like to know more about why when that this, the belief in I or self is uprooted, that frees us from past karma. Did he say anything about Yeah. yeah. It's... Um, It's in some way like that belief not only is the motivation for a lot of actions, for most of our actions, but it's also that it's that sense of self which actually is pulling the results to one. Because, because we're not seeing the emptiness right, of phenomena when there's that strong sense of I. Um, again, the image that he used was that of the string and the beads, and you take the string out, and then it's just individual beads, and they're not pulled along. So this sense of self, this sense of I, which is very strong in us, it's kind of the, it's the knot. It's, it's the central knot you know, which we need to untie. Would that mean that once that the self has been overcome, that if that person were to do an wholesome act, It doesn't mean that there are no longer any karmic results. It means that there's no act either done in the past or done subsequently which has the power to condition a lower rebirth. That's, at this first stage of realization, that's the level of suffering that's eliminated. There's still more to do, and there'll still be unwholesome actions performed. Because there's still... And which will... Right. Which will bear results, but then they're not done... There's no action done which could bear the result of a lower rebirth. And this, in the Buddhist understanding, is of tremendous, tremendous importance.
because it's said that once a being has taken a rebirth in a lower realm, it's exceedingly difficult to again have a human birth. And that's why in, in all the traditions, in Theravada, in Tibetan, in Zen, and maybe in most spiritual traditions, I don't know, there's this great, great emphasis on the preciousness of this human birth. You know, and the continual urging not to waste it. Because somehow our paramis have all been extraordinarily good. I mean, the fact that we're here and interested in practicing the Dhamma is amazing. It's an exceedingly rare event. I mean, you know, look in the world and it's so obvious. So there's strong, strong, wholesome forces at work in our minds given the opportunity you know, and the surroundings and the interest over and over again the Buddha is saying don't blow it <laughs> don't waste it because it's so precious it's like being given this precious precious gift and what strikes me is it probably does you just how fast it goes you know our lives are just Beating by. <laughs> was that a sigh of how fast it was going? <laughs> no, I, the, go on. I, I understand the words you're saying, I think, at least most of them. But the, the weight of this, this statement is so huge. When um, our whole, all of our reference here, everything I've grown up with, everything surrounding me everywhere but in this one spot, reinforces self, I, self, I, and chasing after it, and the worship of it, and everything else. So it is, mm -hmm. it, it is such a huge thing even to understand. That, that's one of the reasons. <laughs> that this is such a precious place. I mean, even as the pipes break down and there's no room for people, <laughs> you know, and all the hassles, there are very few places on this planet which are creating a space for people to understand selflessness. It is huge, but there's something which lightens it tremendously also. And that is, we don't have to figure it all out for ourselves. That is the tremendous gift of the Buddha's enlightenment. I mean, he spent all these eons and eons and eons of working towards awakening in Buddhahood. And it was precisely the power of his mind which could figure all this out, which could see what it is that kept on causing the suffering, and actually what the path was to come out of this sense of I, of self. And so, there's actually a very well-lit path. That's the good news. You know, it's not like we're groping in the darkness to try to figure out a way out of it. The path is laid out, and it's not complicated. But it does take the effort to walk on it. It's not enough just to sit and, 
oh, wouldn't it be nice to be selfless and, you know, that's not enough. We have to really exert ourselves. I think it also helps not to look at the hugeness of it all at once, but to just do it in a moment-to-moment -moment with right effort fashion, right. then one doesn't get overwhelmed. One, I get the subtle feeling that if one isn't doing intensive practice or working in a retreat center or whatever, that you're, are, would you say the, the flavor of your message is you're, you're spinning your wheels, that only in a situation such as this can you really get on with the gist of what the Buddha had to say? Okay, th this ties into the whole discussion of given this background and really what's called upon for us to do and the fact that we've chosen to live in a certain way. How do they mesh? A couple of things to understand. One is What we're talking about here is this uprooting of the sense of self, of I, which is absolutely the turning point in one's samsaric rounds. But that happens at the first stage of enlightenment. It's not a question of having to be fully enlightened. There is a huge difference between the first stage and finishing the job. This first stage of realization is not something so out of reach for ordinary folk like us. <laughs> so that's important to understand. That is actually something that many, many people who put in the required effort actually can come to. And there's even, that stage of enlightenment is called stream entry because it's said that you've entered the stream which just takes you then to full awakening. It's destined. But there's actually a stage of practice <coughs> which is called little stream entry. <laughs> which I always liked a lot. <laughs> and it's one of the stages of insight. It's that stage of insight once things really start cooking a little bit and we're seeing very clearly the arising and passing away of phenomena. Now, there's one particular phase in practice where just the mind is very, very sharp, very clear, and you're seeing the arising, passing, rising, passing, rising, passing of everything. That's called little stream entry because once the mind has built up enough momentum to get to that place, it's said that if one continues to practice, it's for sure that one will actually reach the unconditioned, and come to come to full, to big stream entry. And so even that 
you know, has this huge positive consequence. The, the example given for that is if somebody has their arm raised up in the air, you know that sooner or later it's going to come down. From that stage of rising and passing away, there's this huge push. This is not outside of our range. As I was thinking about what the statement of effort meant for us, I saw it, I saw it in three, three ways of how we can live our lives sort of in this direction. One is actually developing the paramis in our lives, which means really cultivating generosity and cultivating restraint, non-harming, sila. Because those are powerful acts and they prepare the mind for meditative insight. And that can be done in any context. You don't, you don't have to be at IMS. You, it's just really taking care of those skillful actions. So I see that as a big part. I see that as the foundation. The next part I see is making the effort to actually do some serious intensive practice. And by serious, in the context of wanting to uproot this idea of self, not just serious in order to cool out the mind. I think of long retreats, month-long retreats, two-month, three-month retreats, enough time so that one can actually start building up a power of concentration. Because without that power, we don't, we don't open to the deeper levels. And the third part that I saw was necessary was the willingness to do that often that it's not just a question of one one-month retreat, but one three-month retreat, which, you know, is wonderful, but it's really interesting for me to, you know, this is like our 12th or 13th three-month course, and many, many people have come many times now, and it's wonderful to me to see the maturing of their practice. You know, people with a commitment, they want to do this, and they're going to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it, and it's amazing, something happens. But it takes time. And it takes repeated efforts. <coughs> that to me is, as a lay person, the sense of what this kind of effort means. I mean, lay people don't have to drive their seniors and things, it's just monks? No, I think they have to dry up their sinews for periods of time. Yeah. <laughs> monks have to do it full time, all the time. But monks are, the way I see the bhikkhu life, really, I see the Buddha as having it set up, setting up the ideal life for the attainment of full enlightenment, for people who want to go for it. Fuller. I think that's the ideal way. 
because lay life, I think, is just much too entangling. I don't think it's too entangling, and I know that it's not too entangling, to actually reach these first or even second, even third stages, but certainly the first, and that's what's so crucial. Now, once we uproot the sense of self, the rest will come. But even this first, it takes serious work. It's this little stream entry, is that a specific yana? Yeah. yeah. In Pali it's Udayabhaya, but it means the, ari- the stage of arising and passing away. Which is one of the first few. Yeah. 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 It's actually where... Uh, it's about third, isn't it? It's the fourth. <laughs> Fourth out of sixteen, <laughs> but th- that also takes. Basically, it takes a build-up of momentum of samadhi of concentration, and a strengthening mindfulness. But again, it's not it's not something that is out of range or out of scope. Someone practicing it and reaching that stage, carrying on the rest of their lives and dying and being reborn. And it seems that if you're reborn, you're you're starting pretty clean in terms of the that knowledge. Because I can't see a two-year-old having the knowledge of selflessness unless it gets dragged along with them. And you, but if it seems that you need to practice to experience this. What happens when you get reborn? The, 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 if it's actually been uprooted, then that sense of self is not... That's uprooted. That is not... You don't have to start over again. It may not be conceptualized. I mean, there are, there are many people who have actually uprooted this, and you hang out, and they're just, you don't know. <laughs> you know, they're just living their lives ordinary. But there's something different about the quality of their mind. For, for a person who has reached that first stage, that there's no backsliding from that. From a person who has achieved the little, st- <laughs> the little stage, there may be backsliding, but there's this very strong propensity. It's a strong karma, very, very strong. You know? And so just like unwholesome actions are there waiting to bear fruit, the power of, that in, of having had that insight is a very strong wholesome karma. You know? And it pushes you, it just keeps pushing you towards more practice. And it comes more easier. It comes more easily. I mean, the reason that you know, it's and it's very clear in a you know a retreat like this, some people they just seem like naturals. You know, they just kind of drop into it, and the insight is clear, and the samadhi is strong, and other people are struggling and struggling and struggling. It's so clear that it it's background. You know, people who have practiced either in this life or in past lives, so it comes quickly. People who haven't, 
So they need that initial effort again. I think what David said is interesting because babies don't have a sense of self. They're taught to have a sense of self. We teach them. Well, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that's true. Well, from a psychological uh, viewpoint, that's true. Because I just saw something the other day on TV where it's, it's called the, the powder syndrome or something. You put powder on a baby's nose and he looks in the mirror and he doesn't know it's his nose. She doesn't know until they reach a certain age. No, they, they, they may not know that it's its nose, but there's clearly strong forces of desire, of craving, of anger, you know, right away, rooted in that I sense. It may not be conceptualized at all, but in the consciousness that sense is fueling those those forces. I mean, I do that. I think, though, that if we, if we were conditioning the new, newborns uh, in a different way to not identify with that, sure. I think it would be quite different. I think that I and I certainly agree that it isn't. I don't mean to suggest mm -hmm. that I think it's a, that it's a clean slate. Yeah. It's not a clean slate, but there's a lot of amorphousness around who's who. Yeah, but also, it's, I wouldn't want to confuse amorphousness with wisdom. <laughs> what do you think about all this? The, the perspective that whatever effort you put into being mindful is not lost, much less little stream, big stream. The, it actually, <coughs> for those of you who really want to get the hardcore stuff, this book is great. I mean, it's just it's called the Manuals of Buddhism. It <laughs> it's really. It can knock you out. It's really good. It talks about there are people who, even with tremendous effort, are not going to reach those stages because of just some kind of conditioning or lack of maturity of the factors of enlightenment. And it talks about just what you're saying, that if there's that kind of effort, that has, again, a tremendously powerful karmic force, which keeps repelling you in the next life and the next life towards, towards liberation. So that kind of effort is not lost. I think very sporadic efforts, you know, interspersed with a lot of unwholesomeness, obviously has much less power. And so that's why I think it's really important, you know, as lay people, mostly, <laughs> really to look at how we're living our lives and what we do in between times of real strong effort.
my practice within this community here takes a lot of effort. It's a different kind of effort than sitting on Zafu, but it takes a lot of effort and has produced um, insights, mm -hmm. <laughs> which are different kinds of insights. But what comes up for me when I listen is that this all makes sense in theory. And um, for my life right now, what I'm learning living in this community is, is really what I feel like I need. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it feels like that's being undervalued as not quite as important towards true liberation as, as is the other practice. And it seems to me as though there are two different things and they're both important. I think I think they are. Uh, I wouldn't even say they're two different things, because I see them as levels, you know, of insight. Uh, and well, I think one. I think they support each other, so I don't see them as being in conflict. But one of the things the Buddha said, which just has become very clear to me, is that without a foundation of appropriate conduct, concentration is impossible. Without concentration, wisdom is impossible. So the kind of wisdom that we're talking about the wisdom strong enough to uproot the sense of self needs a very refined concentration. Some people just have it. Most of us don't. <laughs> and so it needs some very specific methodology to develop it. The kinds of insights that we get in living in community or living our daily life I think is essential, <laughs> you know, to really come to understand it's on a different level than that. And, and it's precisely, I think, because we've chosen to live as lay people that we have to honor that other part. I mean, if we went off and lived in a hut in the woods or under the roots of trees and just practiced all the time, our interpersonal skills wouldn't be so important. You know, we wouldn't have to take communication workshops. But that's not the life we've chosen. And so all the ways that bring awareness onto this level of our minds, I think, are, are quite critical. I don't get the sense that it has the power by itself to get to the level of uprooting the sense of I. I mean, I'm not ruling out the possibility, but I think it would be very, very rare. I have a couple of questions I'm not sure if they're connected or not. Um, I've really been thinking a lot about the, um, you know, like, um, the image of the Buddha seeing eons into the past and his many lives and recognizing um, him as his uncle and um, 
it seems like there's self in those recognitions. So what 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 part of us what what part continues to be reborn that is recognized as me in the mm -hmm. past or mm -hmm. I had the same thought with Max. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the other question was, um, how does one experience this uh, selflessness? What's it feel like? What is, what is this? Mm -hmm. um, to understand the first question, sometimes some you're asking, what is it that you're born? And when, when we look really carefully, just in this life, at the process of consciousness, we see that it's not one consciousness which is there from birth to death, which is the holder or receiver of experience, but that actually consciousness itself is arising and vanishing, it's being born and dying every moment. But this process of momentary birth and death is not chaotic, it's not random. It's following certain laws. This conditions this, conditions this, conditions this. One of the functions of a factor of mind is the function of recognition, of memory. Which is why when you because mine is a little impaired, but if, if you, you know, think back to yesterday or last week, you could remember, and there would be a sense of continuity between then and now. It's not that something has gone, something unchanging has gone from then to now. It's been a process. This becomes this, becomes this, becomes this, becomes this. But that function of memory can trace that process. It's the same thing from life to life as within one life. So there's no underlying entity which is carried. It's the same part of arising and passing, conditioning the next, conditioning the next. The function of memory can look back and see it. So there's no entity. There's no... That's what's meant by the teaching that it's all empty phenomena rolling on. That it doesn't belong to anybody. There's no there's no selfhood in it. It's just phenomena. So part of the confusion just comes from the use of language then. Yeah. Yeah, th there's a lot because we use words like self and I in a conventional way that's very useful. Um, and so the <laughs> Have any of you read uh, Kafka's Metamorphosis? You know, where he wakes up a cockroach? I, that, that story just always really got to me because it's, a, it's really a Buddhist, it's a Buddhist story because it's like somebody asking the hall, you know, about Max. Like just imagining waking up in a different form with other limitations. And that's all it is. It's just it's the process being conditioned, being conditioned, being conditioned. And the f 
it's being conditioned by the force of our force of our past actions, and the form that it arises in limits or expands the dimensions of that consciousness. You know, and so if death consciousness, rebirth consciousness, is a deva, it's one. Of, it's tremendously spacious and and tremendous intelligence and lucidity and luminosity. As a human, we have these limitations. As an animal, there are other limitations conditioned by the form. It's amazing. I mean, the whole thing is so amazing. <laughs> you know, and it's just... What's even more amazing is that people kind of go along not reflecting about it. I mean, we look brandy, wonderful brandy. I mean, it's so clear there's a being in there. Wonderful being, somewhat limited, <laughs> you know, by the form, by the form that it's in. Um, I think you can understand the sense of selflessness from those times in your practice when you know, you're somewhat concentrated. Maybe the mind is just resting on the breath and thoughts are coming and going and the mind is not identifying with anything. It's just, there's just the phenomena happening. That's a taste. That's really a taste of selflessness. Think of that being more or less the natural state. Just that place where things come and go, and there's not an identification with them. Because there are still remaining defilements in the mind, even when one has uprooted the sense of self, there's still a getting caught. It's not that the mind is totally free, and there's a lot more still to do. But it's all from the reference point of seeing it as selfless. Even the getting caught as being selfless. And so it really changes the things aren't so dense. No, it's not so congested inside. And people have that experience a lot, even along the way. A lot has to do with the enlightenment factors of calm, the factors of concentration, of equanimity, but the mind's not so reactive. Emptiness, I think, is often used synonymously with anatta, or selflessness. There is a whole spectrum of insights into anatta, into selflessness. And so all along the way in our practice, we get 
smaller or greater understandings of it. It's in the moment of the experience of Nibbana where that view of self is actually uprooted. And so there's just this spectrum and this whole range of insights all along the path culminating in that moment. And that moment is, is like the uprooting. And in that momentary experiencing that's the realization of emptiness? Yeah, that, that's the culmination of the realization of emptiness. Because one has seen it to varying degrees and in varying aspects all along the way, but that <coughs> that's the final clincher. It's sort of like, you know, if you think of our uh, normal lives, if you think of it, it's like everything refers back to me. And it's all of our experience, it's like it comes back to the sense of I. Understanding selflessness is making that transition from this to this. From this to this. <laughs> Where experience is just coming and going, and we're not referring it back to anybody. So there's a big difference. There's a big difference in how one is walking through the world. Back to the idea of effort. Um, I guess I feel somewhat resistant to the uh, suggestion that the only, or it seemed like you said the only way, <laughs> maybe you didn't, um, for one to really realize selflessness would be to do periods of intensive, of intensive practice. Not so much for myself because I have the opportunity to do that in my life, but for people who don't have that opportunity. I mean, it seems like, so if someone has a baby or someone has, you know, they, huh? and they can't, intensive practice. It seems like there should be a way. There is a way. There is a way. It's not intensive practice that's required. And the Buddha was very explicit. He said, basically it's everything we're talking about, but even condensed more, if you practice the four foundations of mindfulness, that is the direct way to realization. In very rare cases, people are actually able to do it. So it is possible. But it's not easy. It's, I mean, it's not easy in intensive practice. <laughs> so it's just what I'm saying is not, it's not sort of making an absolute yeah. of intensive retreat. But it is taking a very pragmatic look because I see very often sort of the other extreme, well, <laughs> you know, I'll just kind of be mindful in my life, and and unless it's done with the same commitment as people do intensive practice, yeah. I don't see it leading there. Yeah. But it, and I think we mentioned last week or the week before this, people have that very strong commitment to actually being mindful in a moment-to-moment -moment way. 
I mean, you see what it takes on retreat. Right. It's not easy. And all the conditions are fair. Yeah. But it's possible, mm-hmm. you know, if, if there's that strong sense of urgency. Just to... One more little piece for that revolves around this element of right effort. The Buddha explained what were the efforts that were necessary. One is the effort to get rid of unwholesome states of mind, to let go of them, to kick them out, to chop their heads off, whatever metaphor you like. For those that have already arisen, to let go of them. This itself says something very interesting, and it's, it's, there's a little personal bias that's going to come out now. <laughs> Maybe not <laughs> a slightly unskillful way. <laughs> I sort of see a tendency in, you know, the Dharma in the West to what I call howdy duty dhamma. <laughs> you know, it's like this sense of, well, embrace your defilements and love them and, you know, and everything is one and that kind of stuff. And I just don't see that as what the Buddha is teaching at all. You know, it's not saying to hate them which is often why people have gone to the other extreme because there's so much condemning and self-judgment so as an antidote, we'll love them. And as an antidote, it could have its uses. But really what the Buddha is saying is, for those unwholesome states of mind which have arisen, do something about them. They're not wholesome. They're creating unwholesome karma in the mind. And what he said to do about it, and the essential thing to do, is to be really mindful so that we're not identifying with it, so that we're actually letting go. But it's not that we should just swim along in them. So I think it's worth taking a look at our attitude towards unwholesome mind states. Are we rising to this effort, or are we not? This is one of the efforts that's meant. The other is to prevent those unwholesome states which haven't arisen from arising. And this also is interesting to me because it means really paying attention to the kinds of situations that we know from the past call up unwholesome mindsets and taking care of it, not not diving in over and over and over again to those situations. There's a kind of caring that we need to take for our minds. You know, I think that most of us probably have this tremendously, actually this is quite interesting to me, on one sense, you know, there's this strong conditioning for self-judgment and self-condemning, and on the other sense, I think 
many of us have this very inflated view of just what our minds can handle. No. no. I can do anything. I can, I can be in any situation. And we can't until the mind is really quite strong and purified. And so just to pay attention, okay, what's, what's going to nurture wholesome states and what's going to nurture the unwholesome ones? You know, and to make choices, to make wise decisions in our life. Seems like one could spend a lot of time hiding out in avoidance. I mean, that well, seems avoidance like the near enemy of what you're saying. I think it does have to be done skillfully so that it comes from a place of wisdom. It doesn't make sense, uh, as far as I understand, for alcoholics to hang out in bars. You know, and you could say not going into the bar, well, that's just avoidance. It is avoidance. It's a skillful avoidance. At a certain point, at a certain strength of mind, it won't matter. Mm -hmm. So I think we really have to just take a measure. Because the unwholesome states of mind, it's not that they weaken the mind. So if we find ourselves in those situations over and over again, what we're doing is weakening ourselves. Which makes it even harder then to be able to face them from a place of strength. But it was interesting that the Buddha had to leave his palace in order to experience the four messengers that he had to go into the bar and see the world and see death and, and sickness. No, but that's different because it's not... He had to see the realities, the truths of, of life. They were not unwholesome mind states. So that's different. I'm, I'm saying to really look at those experiences which create greed in the mind, which create hatred in the mind, which create fear in the mind, you know, and just to take care not to continually put oneself in those situations that weaken us until we're strong enough, until we're actually strong enough to, to deal with it skillfully. That's different than opening to the suffering of life. I, one of the things that I get from this, and, and I feel, I think we all need just reminding in a way, is that this kind of work of really freeing the mind means making choices. We can't just... <laughs> kind of flounder about. We have to really look at our lives in a very creative way. It's like creating a work of art. And maybe some works of art are just throwing paint on the wall, but even that's probably done with some technique. You know, it's like our lives are a work of art. How are we fashioning it? 